I'd like to introduce a man who, who has had three jobs. His first job was uh, um, in the government as a soldier, actually, where there is only one boss. You report to that boss, you respond to his words of command, and you listen to those words, which is a command, one boss. After some nine years, this man changes job, became a business person, and I guess is where they say, you make the money, you're the boss. Okay? And then a decade or so after business, he moves on to his third job, and it is a job with no career prospects, or, sorry, no career advancement, no promotion, and he has a few hundred bosses. Some say he only works one day a week, and in that one day, he collects about $35,000 in a blue bag, and he brings it downstairs. So, I guess you know who I'm talking about. You don't? Okay, figure it out. Well, someone in the Bible has also had three jobs. His name is Nehemiah. First, he was what is called a cupbearer. And as cupbearer, you're responsible for the food of the emperor, make sure it's not poisoned, and that would have made him the most trusted lieutenant in, uh, in the kingdom of Persia, serving the king. And you could say that his integrity was unimpeachable. You could say that he was a man of his word, totally honest. But his boss, his boss was a very touchy one. You will read in Nehemiah that, that you cannot even look sad in front of uh, the boss. And for those of you who understand Cantonese, you say, that means he must watch out for the color of, of his face and if he's sad, if he's happy, and then you adjust uh, uh, accordingly. But Nehemiah lived by his word, and it is a capital H, his word, God's word. Why? Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8, Nehemiah says, remember the word, remember the word of God that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them, bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And this is the God, the, the, the Word of God, His Word. So remember His Word. Nehemiah's second job. Second job was uh, a construction engineer to build the walls of Jerusalem, a builder. And there he was threatened, he was schemed against, he was ridiculed, but he was a man of his word. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. And I look around, Nehemiah says, I look around, I arose, and I said to the nobles and to the, to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Remember His word, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember God's word, His word. And then Nehemiah got promoted, promoted to be governor of Judah. And I think he would have wondered, was this promotion uh, a curse or a blessing? Because he had to go through some very difficult uh, times as a governor. But he conducted himself well. He was a man of his word. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 9. And so I said, the thing that you are doing, is, as governor, he was telling his people, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, uh, of the nations our enemies. So come back to God. Remember God. He turned his people towards God 
towards God's Word and towards the God of the Word. But actually, I think Nehemiah had, had a fourth job. Uh, well, he went back to square one. It doesn't quite say that he, he went back to being a cupbearer. It's just silent there. But you can read in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 6, that he returned to work with the king. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. So four jobs. But in his third job, as governor of Judah, something very significant happened. Nehemiah organized a Bible conference. Or you can sort of say he organized the church camp. And what happened there? Several verses from Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the people, uh, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In verse 7, also Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabat, Hannah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the word that was declared to them. It was a great revival. They understood the word. They wept. Then they rejoiced. Then they drank. Then they shared the food with everyone. And there was great joy. They celebrated. You know, some people make a very big deal about uh, the reading of the Bible or the public reading and almost make it into a, a ritual as though the reading itself has some spiritual power. Of course, it's important to read God's Word, but God's Word must be understood. Written five times in this chapter in Nehemiah. Understood so that it enters the heart and then it releases life-changing power understood, then in the heart, and then power. So, to understand, you have to read. And that's why it's so important to read. You cannot understand, you have not yet read. And, and in the New Testament, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Not just that, to exhortation and to teaching so that the Word of God might enter our hearts, that we understand and that we 
are encouraged, that's uh, a translation of exhortation, and then we are taught its ways. So the public reading of the Bible is very important, but also exhortation, explanation, teaching. In Nehemiah's days, the word, the law of the Lord, are the five books. The first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And after they, they read that from portions of that book, then they broke up into cell groups, 13 cell groups under 13 cell group leaders, or 13 Levites. And the Levites helped the people to understand what was read. In the New International Version, it says the cell group leaders, no, it doesn't say it's the cell group leaders. It says the Levites made it clear and gave meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And so the Word of God impacted their minds because they understood. The second part of chapter 8, which we have not read, talks about the Feast of Tabernacles and where the people of Israel discovered or, or rediscovered the, that God had instituted a ceremony, a ritual, as it were, to remind the people and to teach the people of His grace and His deliverance upon the nation of Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles. They were to gather trees and branches and to make makeshift booths or tabernacles or shelters and to live inside that for seven days with great rejoicing. Why? because it was to commemorate their deliverance as slaves when they were in Egypt. And as they left Egypt, they lived in temporary tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles in the wilderness before they entered the Promised Land. And so they understood this word, and they understood the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles, and then they did it. They, they put the branches together, they did it, and their joy was very great when they did it. And the Bible says, not since the days of Joshua had there been such great rejoicing. And it's not as though that since the day of jo days of Joshua, there's about a thousand years between Joshua and Nehemiah that they did not do the Feast of Tabernacles. They did, and the Bible records that they do, but they did not understand the significance because it has become like a meaningless ritual. But when they finally understood, they never had such joy. That's what's recorded in Nehemiah. So when the Word of God impacts our minds and we understand, then the Word of God will impact our hearts and we rejoice. And what happens when the Word of God touches your heart? Yeah, you rejoice, but at the same time, you also grieve. When you see how far short we fall from of the glory of God and where there is a, a sensitivity to the holiness of God, and to our sinful self. Yeah, you, you get sad, but then you also rejoice when you finally switch and you know that, wow, God is the God of grace. Um, in some church traditions, whenever the scripture is read, uh, the pastor will say, let us stand to honor God in the reading of his scripture. Uh, but I'm not, not going to do that. Uh, just going to show you where this comes from in Nehemiah. Chapter 9, verse 2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed the sins and the iniquities of the fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord, from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession 
and worship the Lord their God. And then following this, in the rest of chapter 9 of Nehemiah, it's, it's recorded the longest prayer in, in the Bible. Uh, and it's often referred to as identificational repentance, meaning that the people of Nehemiah's days identified with the ancestors, with the people who were there in Jerusalem building the wall, and even the, Is- the uh, Israelites who were not in Jerusalem, together, collectively, they had a time of corporate repentance. And chapter 9, chapter nine in that prayer traces the history of God's dealing with Israel, from creation to Abraham, to the exile to Assyria, to Babylon, Persia conquered them, and now they return, uh, some of them, to Jerusalem. And it traces the repeated rebellion of Israel against God. And it traces God's repeated forgiveness and grace toward the children of Israel. So the Word of God impacted their minds, they understood. Now the Word of God impacted their hearts where, yes, they repent with uh, sadness, but then they also rejoice with gladness as the Word of God impacted their hearts. And then the Word of God impacts their will where they obey. How did it obey? In Nehemiah's days, as we read, they wrote down how they will obey in an oath and they got people to sign it. And then it ends with this verse in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God, which represents the collective identity and the collective witness of the children of Israel. What did they sign? What did they pledge to obey? And then to put right? Because it was not right in Nehemiah's days. And that's like 2,500 years ago in Nehemiah's days. And now we need to discern what they wrote in that oath, what they put right 2,500 years ago, what are the principles behind that that still applies to us today in 2018. So we will look at four things that Nehemiah and the people of Israel wrote in that oath and where they put right. First one, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, it says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. I guess the modern-day equivalent would be the practice of not being unequally yoked, which uh, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, some scholars have argued that the context of this verse in um, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 is not... It's strictly not about marriage. So you cannot use that verse and say, that, oh, you know, um, uh, believers and non-believers should not marry. Well then, let's look at this other verse then. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. There is a qualifier only in the Lord. And so we can say that it is God's intention that when a man and a woman get married, both of them should be in the Lord. They should have the same spirituality. They should have the same uh, pledge to honour God with their married lives. Now, I know that this is very difficult, and I guess the purpose of this teaching is not like God's got this mean streak that He wants to reduce reduce the size of the fishing pond 
for boys looking for girlfriends and girls looking for, for boyfriends. Actually, it is for your own good. It is for our own good because the long-term future of a lifetime of marriage is that important that you should both have the same outlook and the same pledge to worship the same God. And there is more than enough empirical evidence historically that Israel was always led astray when their children started to, to, to marry uh, the peoples who did not honour Jehovah Lord as, as God. And, and like in the days of uh, Solomon, he simply got led astray. Um, more than enough evidence throughout the Bible you can read. And even today, I think there is just as much evidence that, when, that Christians tend to leave their faith when they are unequally yoked. So what is the principle? And I believe that there is a larger principle at work, and it is this. It is, I will trust God's ways. Some of us may feel that every cell in my body rebel against this, this teaching. I will trust in God's ways. I will not be distracted. I will not be led astray. And God's way is for my own good and not some masochistic religious restriction. The thing is about faith. Do we have faith? Do we believe and trust God that God will supply all our needs according to His riches in glory? That He will supply joy, which is more than a good feeling. I think a good feeling is like, if you're a, a teenager or a young person, we all want to have a trophy girlfriend or trophy wife, right? That, that you go into some function, eh, uh, I got a trophy, uh, a partner. It's not that good feeling. And, and it's not an accident, I believe, that Nehemiah was the one who recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's not a good feeling, it's our strength. It's joy. And joy in the midst of societal norms or even suffering or pain. That is joy and not a good feeling. Ultimately, it's about faith. It's about trusting God. And, and, and Brothers and sisters, it is not the end of the world if we don't have a girlfriend <laughs> or we don't have a boyfriend or, or we don't have a wife. And if you have a wife, uh, we don't have children. Or if you're like me, you don't have grandchildren. It's not the end of the world because ultimately our faith is in God, right? If He supplies and He blesses, we rejoice. If for some reason I am childless, I also rejoice because... The joy of the Lord is my, is my strength. And all my relatives can say, what's wrong with you? Ah? What's wrong with you? Ah? How, about, how come you got no children? The joy of the Lord is my strength. He will supply that joy. So, number one, we trust in God. That His ways are actually good for us, even for many who will look upon this and say, it's, it's, it's a restriction. It cramps my style. Number two, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Nehemiah put right the practice of the Sabbath. And uh, our missionary sister from, from Chad, uh, Miriam Copland, is going to talk about that on the 24th of June, so I'll leave that much. Uh, more to her. Uh, you, work seven, you work six days and you rest one day. What is the principle here? 
I believe the principle is not so much the Sabbath. Again, I will honour, not the Sabbath, but I will honour the Lord of the Sabbath. And it means to me is, what it means to me is, I will not neglect the spiritual. The Sabbath is not just a day of rest. You know, work hard and then you rest. But resting in the Lord. And the Sabbath is to feed the soul. Two Saturdays ago, I was at this, um, at, at a meeting and there was a talk. This man walked up to the stage and then I found out that he was uh, Anthony Tan, the CEO and the co-founder of Grab. You know, some of us use Grab to get a, a car and a taxi. And then he opened his mouth and, and then I hear words like stewardship and servant leadership and all that. And in my spirit, I just felt something. It was a business thing, you know. Uh, in Singapore Poly, and I just felt something, and, and these days is wonderful, so I googled his name. Oh, yes, indeed, he was a Christian, but I already felt it before Google tells me. And, and, um, and so he talked about business, you know, the three things, you must love what you do, you must have grit, and, and something, something else, three points. And then at the Q&A time, somebody asked him, uh, do you have promotion code for today? <laughs> then he said no but someone asked him anything else you want to tell us then he said yes he said faith of course he didn't he didn't use the name of Jesus or, or Christianity or something like that but he said faith look faith keeps me humble when I raise two billion dollars for grab hey, can you imagine raising two billion you continue to lose money but you got two billion dollars to spend and faith keeps me from depression when my business was failing, and he has failed in business uh, before. And, and I also found out that he couldn't talk until he was five years old. People thought that he was retarded, but he's got a Harvard MBA now. Faith! And I just felt all this in, in the spirit. And Sabbath is about the spiritual. Six days work, one day rest, one day to feed your soul. And again, Empirical evidence and even medical evidence tells us that there is such a thing called the circa-septon rhythm. Circa means a cycle, septon means seven. That's a, in, in natural history, there's this cycle of seven, a seven-day rhythm where, you know that the, the Russians in 1929, right, they were a totally atheistic society. They wanted to, to reform society away from religious practices of the Sabbath and so they instituted like continual work and a five-day week, uh, and, and, and all that. And after three years, they failed. The seven-day cycle has actually been found in the fluctuations of blood pressure, in the acid content in our blood, uh, in our heartbeat, in our oral temperature, in urine chemistry, and, and, and this kind of thing. It's just a God thing. And so, the Sabbath, to me, is not a religious restriction. It is for your own good. I know I'm sounding like the PAP now, but it is for your own good that to rest the body, to feed the soul, to honour the soul maker. So that's why I say the principle is to honour the Lord of the Sabbath. The third thing that Nehemiah and his people did to put right was tithing. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits from of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Verse 37, to bring to the Levites the tithes 
from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. What is the principle here? Is it that 10% belongs to the Lord and 90% belongs to you? You know, there's a lot of arguments and articles written about this practice of tithing. Does it still apply in the New Testament days, in our days? And I came across this research, uh, 2017, very recent, last year, from Lifeway Research, where they uh, surveyed 1,010 American churchgoers, and they asked this question, is tithing a biblical command that still applies today? Okay, for you who don't understand tithing, tithing says give 10% back to God. Okay? And so 81% of American, uh, or 83% of uh, those surveyed, these 1,000 Americans, say that yes, it applies today, it is still a command. 7% says no, because it does not really, uh, there is no clear command written in the New Testament that you must tithe. Except one, actually, Matthew 23, 23, when Jesus was berating the, the Pharisees that you tithe your, your yim sai chong, you tithe your smallest of, uh, of uh, herbs, and, and then you neglect the, the bigger matters of justice and all that before the law, of the law, and then Jesus says, you should do justice and do not neglect the former. That means do not neglect tithing. Okay? That's about the only verse that, that, that talks very strictly about tithing. But anyway, so lots of arguments, articles written. And then there's the next question. Next question is, to which of the following can tithes money be given? And so uh, 98% says the tithe should be given to the church. Then 35% says the tithe can be given to another church where I'm not attending. Uh, 48% says the tithe can be given to any Christian ministry. And 18% says the tithe can be given to a secular charity. You can give it to the Red Cross uh, organization, for example. And 34% says the tithe can be given to any individual in need. So if on the way to church, you meet somebody poor, you give him $1,000, so you can deduct $1,000 from the church. Okay? So this is the survey. Uh, and, and there are other arguments. Some say the tithe is net of tax. So you work out your income, and then you've got to pay 10% or 15% of tax, so it's net of tax. Uh, some say it is net of your giving to parents. So you earn $1,000, you give 200 to your parents, you tithe on 800 No, not 800 minus the tax first. So whatever, the remainder, then you do 10% of that. Some say it is net of giving to charity. Some say it is net of giving uh, or saving for your children's education. All those arguments, plenty of those. Your tithe, what you put into the blue bag, part of it, not all of it, is given to me for my salary. And if I also tithe, isn't that double taxation? So I shouldn't tithe because you already tithe, right? You give to me and then I tithe again, double taxation. But in Nehemiah's day, it's very clearly written that the Levites who collect the tithe, they themselves tithe to the Lord. So then tithing cannot be thought of as taxation. So what is the principle there? It cannot be that 10% belongs to the Lord and 90% belongs to us because 100% belongs to the Lord. 
And I believe this is where Jesus helped us a lot in this verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. It says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is so counterintuitive. It should be where your heart is, that's where you put your treasure. But Jesus says, follow the money. Follow the money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, I tithe because I want my heart to be in the right place. Right? When I give, I want to give what is right and what is not, what is not left or left over. I want to give my first fruits. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honour the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And just at tea time, just now I learned something interesting. Andrew, who is becoming our resident expert in uh, Jewish affairs, told me that he learned this and some uh, a Jewish farmer told him that, that in the days of agriculture, your first fruit is like not all the trees will bear fruit together at the same time and then just select 10%. It's really the first. The first tree that comes up and bears fruit and the other 90% may not yet have borne fruit. You just give 100% of the first fruits to God first. And then you have faith that the other 90% of your fruit trees will bear fruit. It's like that, right? First fruits, you just give to God because you have faith in God. So I give because I do not want to neglect the house of God. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. And, and let me share with you my practice. Ever since I've become a Christian, except for a short period when I tried to negotiate with God, I told God that, hey, I just bought a house. Cash flow is kind of tight. God, can I give you a promissory note with interest? Right? So if for the next one year I don't give to you, I will count and I will impute an interest. And then when I get promoted, I get more money, I will pay back everything with interest. Until a, a friend of mine scolded me. He says, what are you thinking? So, so I didn't do that. Okay? So my practice is always 10% of gross income. As soon as I get my paycheck, 10% goes to the church. To the church, I worship here with all my brothers and, and sisters here. And if I sponsor a child uh, for education with care channels, uh, if I give to charity, if I give to Block 50, renovations in CSC and other Christian organizations, this is not 10%. This is outside my 10%. That's how I practice. And let me also present um, an issue here for, for consideration. You know, I'm never worried about money in this church. I was right, faith, you know, God will always provide. Until about the end of last year, as I look at all those figures I presented to you, I began to worry about money. I said, this church is growing old. And, and I think, if I'm correct, is that as our older, richer people start to retire, no income means no outcome. Oh, sorry, no tithe. Right? And then the younger people like you, uh, you all don't earn enough. And, and that's why the, the, the giving is, is, is impacted. And I said, wow, if we don't have more and more young people and our, our aging population, more and more people retire, then where is the money going to come for the sustenance of, of this church? So I went to talk to an older pastor. I said, yeah, this is, I think, my analysis of the situation. This is what not just PPH, but many churches are going through as uh, Singapore ages. 
Then he says, legacy law. What do you mean legacy? He says, well, you encourage the people when they write their wills to give some money to the church when they die. So I said, brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. So not so many old people here, but those of you who are writing your wills, yeah, think about that. But it's true, you know. Uh, SGM, Scripture Gift Mission. Um, in the old days, I've, I asked them, I said, how do you get your money? You don't advertise, you don't have ties, you, you got nothing. And they tell me that uh, they are largely sustained by, the, in England, the, the practice of uh, giving when people die, inheritance. So, I don't know if you're talking nonsense, so I had to try to find a biblical basis for saying this. And uh, it's not first fruits, it's last fruits. Huh? And, and I think that's a very good example of King David. When King David was about to die, he just took money and he helped his son and he helped the nation of Israel to build their first temple. So there might be a biblical basis for this and I hope I'm not just talking nonsense here. Okay. Um, one other thing. Number, oh, sorry, this is, I will be a cheerful giver. And the word, Greek word is hilaros, from where we get the word hilarious. So it's really, I mean, tripping, did this song, Reckless Love, it's like reckless giving. Who in his right mind would, of all his orchard, the first fruits he give 100%. Then you trust God that the 90% will bear fruit. Right? Who, when you collect your, 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 your paycheck, before you even think about what expenses you have for that month, you chop 10% and you give to the church. It's like that. It's out of that supreme trust that God will provide. It'll be okay. And then you give cheerfully. It's like that. Because giving teaches us how to be grateful. Right? If you don't have that sense of gratitude, I don't think you can be a cheerful giver. You can be giving 25%, 50%, but grudgingly, then I think in the spiritual, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. As I give of my first fruits before anything else, I am trusting in the source of all goodness and the source of my sustenance. It is for my own good. It helps me to be grateful. Right? Um, yes, the fourth one, I think. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 17, the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and the joy was very great. Finally, they took the Feast of Tabernacles seriously and then they received its attendant benefits. The joy was very great. They recalled their delivery from slavery in Egypt. They reflected on life as they lived seven days in temporary shelters that were hastily put together, just like the old days when they left Israel, uh, when they left Egypt. They repented of their sins. That's why they were crying. They were weeping. And then they rejoiced like never before, not since the days of Joshua, about a thousand years. What is the modern-day equivalent? I can think of our Holy Communion as a, as a good equivalent to the Feast of tab Tabernacles. And I believe the principle, therefore, would be I will reflect, uh, I will recall God's goodness, I will reflect upon my life, I will repent, and then I will rejoice. 
And 1 Corinthians 11.28, we often read when we take the communion, and it says, let a man examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Do we reflect, examine ourselves, recall, reflect, repent, rejoice? Or we think, wow, this is a good break, man. a good break between standing up and, and singing the worship songs and then the sermon, this is time for me to check my Facebook and my email to see what's coming in as we take this interim uh, Holy Communion thing. And, you know, when the Holy Communion happens, I, I take great pains not to be judgmental. Because sometimes I really cannot stand it when, when I see someone saunter into, into the worship hall um, late and, and then, oh, they miss the bread. Huh? But never mind, can still take the wine. So they sit down and then they, they take the wine. I'm thinking like, what? Have you examined yourself and so take of the bread and wine? Um, and, and that's where it gets me. Of course, I, I recognize that the MRT breaks down, you can be late, or your pet dog has just died, and then you are late, and all that, all, all that. So I, I, I just, ah. Yeah. And, and then there is this teaching going around town that, that you don't need to, to confess your sins anymore, you don't need to repent anymore, because your sins have already all been forgiven, and it's, it's the so-called, I think, Christian self-esteem on steroids. Right? You are highly beloved, you are a fantastic uh, a child of God, highly loved and all that. And to the extent that we have lost our sensitivity to sin, we've simply lost it because we think we are always right before God. Huh? Jesus has forgiven my sins, past, present, future. We are always right before God. We have lost our sensitivity to sin and to anything that dishonors God, including coming late to church for no good reason and then just saunter in and then you feel like I can feast before the Lord. You know, the original t- title of my sermon when we first prepared this series was Spiritual Revival. And, and indeed, that was what happened in Nehemiah's days from chapters 8 to 10. And then I recall probably the first time I, I stood here and talked about revival was, um, and I checked my records, it was on the Boxing Day of 1999. Some of you may not be born yet. 26th of December 1999, at the turn of the millennium, remember Y2K and all that, where everybody was kind of had a sensitivity to wow, end of the world and Christ comes again and, and all that. And let me just quote to you what I, what I preached then. So what is revival? Why does this word stir up such strong emotions? Because it suggests that you are dead and needs to be revived. Okay, one small correction. You do not revive the spiritually dead. The spiritually dead cannot be revived. They need to be resurrected and reborn. Revival is for the spiritually half-dead. Revival is for the Christian. How many of us here wants revival for PPH? How many of us are willing to fast and pray first for our leaders that God will touch their lives, grant them discernment, wisdom, strength? How many want God to bring a refining fire to our lives that we will spread from here outwards. How many feel that a monthly prayer meeting, in those days in 1999, we only pray once a month uh, corporately, how many uh, uh, feel that a monthly prayer meeting is simply not good enough? 
How many yearn to see our friends and loved ones come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour? Yearn to see our lives change and those around us. End of quote. I think I preached better in 1999 than I do now. Really, where is that spiritual desire that comes from inside here? Some of us may not even want revival. Don't talk to me about revival because we think of revival as some weird Holy Spirit thing that's going to happen and we are not comfortable with that. It may be unusual and is recorded through history, but I think there is one fundamental that we must get right and that fundamental is the place of the Word of God in our lives. Has the Word of God impacted our minds in the first place? That we understand the Word. Well, we may never understand everything about the Word, but of the little that we understand, does it impact us? Do we understand? And does it come from the mind to the heart where we actually repent and then we, we can rejoice that we can repent and that God forgives and God gives grace, touching our hearts, or we simply have this good feeling. It's a good feeling that we are sin forgiven and heaven bound, got passport already, good enough. Or do we have true joy and not just a good feeling? And then we delight in the Word, we rejoice in the Word, and then I believe that the key to it all is the will. Will we obey? Or will we willfully disobey? Or worse, we apathetically don't care. So revival comes when our will is aligned with the Word. And no matter where we've been in the wilderness and how crooked things have become, we bring it back and align it to God's will when we obey. That's the power of the Word. Mind, heart, will. And Jesus says, and the Bible tells us that it's like a washing. In Ephesians chapter 5, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Washing of water with the word. That he might present himself, uh, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's holiness. Holiness. So, unequally yoked, what is the principle there? Trust God. Trust God. He's got the best for you. And, and don't be too clever. Don't be cleverer than God and, and twist this and bend that and say, it's okay. Trust God. On the Sabbath, not just a day of rest, but honour the Lord. On the Sabbath, you rest the body, yes, but you feed the soul. So on a Sunday, how do we feed the soul? We watch Netflix. We do a Netflix binge, I think is what it's called. Do we? We feed the soul. It's not just rest, right? Rest you can do anytime. But it's the spiritual, the essence of the Sabbath is to feed the spirit. And then tithe, cheerful giver, and reckless, right? First time person don't care, right? Because God will provide all the rest. And I just settle this in, 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 in my practice. And it doesn't, it never bothers me anymore because it's, it's just been what you do, right? 10% goes away. Uh, the moment you receive 10% goes away. 
and, and God amazingly supplies all the rest. And then the Holy Communion. Uh, please don't saunter in halfway. I don't want to see because then I get very judgmental. Uh, and then you come and tell me, actually, MRT broke down. Uh, forgiven. This is to, to recall, to reflect, to repent, and to, to rejoice. And these are some of the good indicators of, of spiritual health. You know? Do we read, then we understand, then we rejoice, and then we bend our will back to, to God's will. So, are you a man or a woman of His Word? I know some of us are very proud. I, I live a life of integrity, you know, what I say, my word is my bond, I'm a man of my word, but no, 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 no. Are you a man of His Word? You know, do you bend your will back to the will of God and live for our own good as God designed it? And so will you trust in God's ways? Will you honour the Lord of the Sabbath? Will you be a cheerful giver? And as we take Holy Communion or, or whatever, do we recall, reflect, rejoice, repent and then rejoice? Let me ask the worship team to come and help us with this closing song. We say, say the word and I will live for you. Can we live our lives that way? As trusting God Almighty. Let's, let's stand as we sing this song. Still feel by far to say 
this is the desire of our hearts that we might live for you and live according to your ways. And so, God, I want to pray for all my brothers and sisters here and myself included. As so often we we think we know better, but we really need to be realigned to the Word of God, and we need to have faith, God, that Your ways are best, even if it takes. A while for us to recognize that God, we just step out in faith. So from trusting Your ways, from honoring the Lord of the Sabbath, from being a cheerful giver, from being a reflective person that we might recall, reflect, repent, and rejoice. God, that You will help each one of us to be. Centered, centered on the Lord Jesus, centered on God, and centered on God's word. That this is the best. Honoring you, all our days. You say the word, and we will live according to it. Thank you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>